Even if you were to read your Bible in a cursory manner, if you were gleaning through the pages in the books of the Bible looking for a central theme, it wouldn't be hard to see the main points of Scripture, to see the reality that God is righteous and that we are not. That the God of the Bible is holy, undefiled, and pure, and we are not. And these two realities throughout the Scripture frame for us the human predicament. There is a divide between God and humanity. There is a breach in our relationship with God. And how we overcome this breach is the subject of debate between the Apostle Paul and his rival teachers. In this portion of his letter to the Galatians, Paul puts forward his answer to the predicament. His answer to the human predicament as he unfolds for us the great doctrine of justification by faith. This is our first encounter with the word justified in Paul's letter. The word justified is a legal term which is borrowed from the law courts. And to be justified is the exact opposite of being condemned. To condemn, of course, is to declare a person as guilty. While to justify is to declare as innocent or as righteous. Paul and the Judaizers, as they were commonly called, were in conflict over their differing views of what made a person justified in the eyes of God. What made a person righteous in the eyes of God. The Judaizers were teaching that righteousness is the result of careful obedience to the law. The word justified inherently means law-abiding, so it might be a natural tendency to say, well, to be law-abiding, I need to be obedient to the law. And so the Judaizers taught if you want to be declared law-abiding, you actually need to be law-abiding. For the Judaizers, justification was the reward for good performance. But Paul strongly opposes this view. He says in verse 16, We know, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul and the Judaizers are saying opposite things about how a person is reconciled to God. Now, sometimes we hear two sides debating and we think, oh, they're closer than we might imagine, you know. They're just two shades of the same thing. Well, not here. They're saying opposite things. The Judaizers are saying obedience to the works of the law gets you right before God. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with how you get right before God. And it would be a mistake... If we were to regard the position of the Judaizers as unique, 
As though we never come across this view anymore. You you couldn't just sit here this morning and say, well, that that was an ancient debate. That was 2,000 years ago. They fought over how to be justified before God. And the, the view of the Judaizers just isn't seen anymore. That's not true. I would suggest to you this morning that the view of the Judaizers is the prevailing view in our in our day. It's the view that most people have. John Stott calls the religion of the man in the street today this religion that says good deeds saves a person. This has been my experience as well. In 18 years of pastoral ministry and conducting membership classes, it is, I, I ask this question, I guess, in a variety of forms, but in every membership class, I'm always asking the person, the prospective member, the question, how do you get into heaven? What makes you right in the eyes of God? What's it going to take for you to be reconciled to God? And I regret to report that what I usually hear in reply sounds a lot like, well, follow the commandments. Try your best. Do all that you can to be a nice person. Try to be a good person. This is the answer of the man on the street to the question of how a person is reconciled before God. And this letter from Paul to the Galatians is his attempt to refute that view, to debunk that view. Paul says plainly, verse 16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, trying your hardest to be a good person will not gain you entry into heaven. I can't emphasize this enough because this is what you will meet on the streets of NASA, the streets of almost anywhere in North America. This notion that trying my darndest to be a good person and God's going to look down and he's going to see my effort and he's going to let me in. That's the view of the person on the street. But the reality is we'll never perform well enough in order to justify ourselves. You'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough to justify ourselves. Now you might look around this morning and think, well, I can outperform him. I can do better than her. I I can live a more godly life than the person in front of me. We may outperform others with our morality, but we will always remain well below God's standard. Well below the holy standard. And that's why you have Paul putting forward this view of justification, which talks about dying to the law. What does that mean? Does it mean we throw out the law? Does it mean we tear up the law? No. The law is good and righteous and reflects the righteous character of God. So why would Paul say he's dying to the law? It means that he has abandoned the law as a means to becoming right in God's eyes. Paul has abandoned the law as a means to becoming justified in the eyes of God. I don't know where you're at with this. I don't know if you came in here today holding to the view on the street. If you were thinking, I'm just trying my hardest. 
I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to hope it works out well for me on judgment day. I don't know if that was you. I hope you can get to where Paul is. Because Paul's perspective is both humbling, but it's also liberating. It's humbling to recognize that by the standard of God's law, I will never measure up. By the standard of God's law, I will never be good enough. I will always fail the test. I will always miss the mark. But it's liberating to hear that I don't have to measure up. I don't have to hit the bullseye. It's liberating to learn that Christ has written the exam on my behalf. And if I trust in Him, then His results are credited to me. To put it another way, when Christ represents us, God judges us by Christ's performance and not ours. Christ, God judges us by Christ's performance and not ours. And friends, this is what it means to be justified by Christ. It means that God looks upon Him and forgives us. Now there are many critics of Paul's view. There were critics in Paul's day whom he is writing against. But there are critics of Paul's view in our day. There is a concern with Paul's view that we're justified not by what we do, but by what Christ did. The worrying concern is this, is that it will demotivate people from trying to do good deeds. It will demotivate people from paying any attention to God's law. And the logic goes something like this. If God is willing to justify people who do bad things, why should I try so hard to be good? If I can make a mess of things, if I can disobey God left, right, and center, and still get into heaven by what Jesus did, why should I bother trying to be good? If God justifies me based on what Jesus has done, why can't I just do as I please? Knowing that God will forgive me in Christ. Paul refutes this view. Explaining that we are not simply justified by Christ. But we are also justified in Christ. Which is to say that by faith, this is huge. By faith we have union with Christ. John Stott explains this well when he writes, Justification is not a legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. Someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. Instead, he is changed. It is not just his standing before God which has changed, it is he himself, radically, permanently, changed. Accordingly, someone who is being changed by their union with Christ 
isn't going to seriously entertain this notion that it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter how I live, because Christ will forgive me. If you're united with Christ, you won't think like that. And if you know a person who claims to have faith in Christ, who claims to be a Christian, but if that person has no real interest in obeying the law of God, we have reason to question whether they are in union with Christ. We have reason to question whether they are genuinely a Christian. And this is what Paul is challenging throughout the letter. Those who had named Christ, those who might put up their hand and say, I'm a Christian, and those who genuinely are. Someone who is genuinely redeemed by Christ will, will resonate with what Paul says in verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I really just wanted to preach on that one verse the entire time I stood here, but I felt like I should introduce it with the verses that precede it. But I think we can spend the rest of our time this morning looking at verse 20, Galatians 2.20. Look at that first phrase on its own. I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? I think it means many things, but if I take the words plainly, I take it to mean that Christ was our representative on the cross. That is to say that when Jesus hung on the cross, he did not hang there as a private citizen, but he hung there as a representative for all his people. Jesus represented us and did for us what was necessary to become reconciled to a holy God, and so he paid the penalty that our sins deserved. Now the cross of Christ, as you can appreciate, is central to Christianity. Without the cross, we don't have Christianity. And so it's important that we rightly connect ourselves to that event in history. And so I'm going to have you imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine with me that your house is burning down. Your house is burning down, and for the sake of this story, uh, you have a large family, you know, there's husband, wife, and many children. Your house is burning down, and all of your family gets out safely. Your house is just being consumed by flames, mortal danger, but you manage to get out with all your family. And then I come along and say, you want to know how much I love you? Watch this. And I run into your burning house, and I die. You'd think, well, what a tragedy. You know, that was kind of him, I guess, but what was he thinking? We're all safe. Why did he run into the burning house and die? We're fine. Now imagine a second scenario. 
where your house is burning up, it's being consumed by flames, but this time, one of your children is still inside the house. And I come along, and I say, give me a minute. And I rush inside the burning house, and I pull out your child, and your child lives, but I perish in the process. Then you would say, what wonderful love this is. This is the most kind act, the most sacrificial act. If Jesus hung on a cross, and there is no real connection to us, then his death was little more than a tragedy. Like someone running into a burning house when no one's inside to save. If we could save ourselves by our good deeds, if we could save ourselves by our strong moral performance, then Christ didn't need to run in the house. He didn't need to die on the cross if we could save ourselves. But if there was a real sense in which my soul was in danger of hell, and by dying on a cross, Jesus rescued my soul, then truly I should sing, Love amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or as Paul determined, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice how unique this section of Paul's letter is. Notice how many personal pronouns in the first person that are in that single verse, verse 20. Verse 20 is loaded full of eyes and me's. Eyes and me's. And while it's true that Jesus represented more than just Paul on the cross, Paul's interest is that he would personally, individually respond to what Christ has done. Paul, for the moment, pauses from speaking about the church's obligation to Christ and now focuses on his own personal obligation to Christ. Paul is thinking and speaking now about what he must do. How he must live in response to Christ's love. Friends, I would like you to do the same. I want you to think about how you ought to respond to the love of Christ. Or let me ask it this way. What would your life look like? How would you need to change if you were to say with Paul, it is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now Paul said that. Paul says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now I ask you this morning, what would need to change in your life 
were you to embrace that statement and own it for yourself? That's a striking thing to say. Don't you think what Paul says? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think it's striking because of this. Before we were united with Christ, we lived for whom? We lived for ourselves. Before I was united with Christ, everything I pursued was for me. Everything I strived for was for me. My personal comfort was the chief aim of Bryn McPhail before he was united with Christ. Then Paul comes along and tells me that person died with Christ on the cross. Paul tells me that a new I has emerged. And Paul declares that the new me is united to Christ. He explains that Christ lives in me. And we can't think about that reality enough. That to be united by, with Christ by faith means the Spirit of Christ lives within you. And this is why a genuine Christian is always a changing person. This is why a genuine Christian is always a changing person. Because the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us. He is constantly influencing us. He is constantly strengthening us to do His will. Now becoming like Christ, as we can all attest to by experience... Becoming like Christ, unfortunately, is not an overnight experience. I wish it were the case that the moment I received Christ, the moment I became a Christian, I instantaneously became like Him. But of course, if I've spent years looking out for me, in some cases, if you've spent decades pursuing your own desires, then we've got some habits that are going to be difficult to break. And we might never leave our self-serving habits if it weren't for the real presence of the Son of God living within us. The Son of God, Paul says, who loved me and who gave himself for me. I know it's such a simple statement. But to me, it's the most important phrase a person could ever hear. We sung it, and we might not have even been thinking about it. Thinking, oh, this is a kid's hymn. The kids are in Sunday school. What are we doing? It's the most important phrase a person can hear. Jesus loves me. Where do we learn that? The Bible tells me so. Paul tells me so. Are you united to Christ? Have you placed your faith in Him? Because if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that glorious phrase applies to you. Jesus loves you. And for Paul, 
The love that Christ had for him changed everything. A new Paul emerged. A new Paul emerged whose resolve was to calibrate his life in faithful response to the one who loved him and died for him. And so I have to ask you this morning, is the love of Jesus a game changer for you? Or is this just some silly children's hymn that we sing without really thinking? Does the phrase, Jesus loves me, does it mean anything? What will it change for you? Because if you are united to Christ, there should be evidence of an older version of you and a newer version of you. And with the passing of time, the newer version of you should look more and more like Jesus. And less and less like the older version of yourself. But again, unfortunately, becoming like Christ is not an automatic thing. It's not as if I wake up in the morning thinking, wow, I feel more like Jesus than I did yesterday. It doesn't work like that. It it doesn't happen while we sleep. You can sense the intentionality in Paul's declaration, in his resolve to live by faith. To the Philippians, his intentionality is even more pronounced. He says, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. To the Corinthians, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I'm not going through the motions. I do not box as one beating at the air. Becoming like Jesus requires that you take aim at becoming like Jesus. You'll never hit a target that you're not aiming for. It's... It's Christianity 101, but we're not going to become like Christ automatically. You're not going to hit a target you're not aiming at. Becoming more like Jesus requires that you wrestle with God in prayer. It requires that you wrestle with God in the pages of Scripture. In short, becoming like Christ is hard work. And I wonder if this is where we lose a lot of people. We find out that to become like Christ is going to require serious effort and serious change. And so some people just say, it's not for me. But it's my great privilege this morning to declare to you that if you are united to Christ, and if you are pursuing a life that is aiming to be like Him, Your effort will never be in vain. Because that is God's goal for you. He wants you to become like Christ. That's His design for your life. So the effort that you invest in Christ's likeness will be vindicated. He will make you like Him. I hope this is the best of news to you. That the old you is dying. The person you used to be is vanishing. And the new you is being renovated. 
The new you is being changed by the Spirit of Christ that lives within you. So keep pressing forward. Keep straining for what's ahead. Keep living by faith. He will change you. He will make you like Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.